Good morning. This morning I'm going to read to us, for us, from Ecclesiastes 3. We're going to start at verse 16, and we're going to go to chapter 4, verse 3, and then another section um, in chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. But before we do that, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that we can get together here, that we can worship in your house. Lord, I thank you that we have this privilege. So many people do not have it. Lord, I thank you that you want to show us your way today. I thank you that you have prepared it already. And I thank you that you want us to settle down and be peaceful and to forget everything else as you speak to us this morning. I pray for that. Amen. So we'll start in chapter 3, verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upwards and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Jumping to verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. No, we're in Ecclesiastes this morning, and Ecclesiastes is full of good news. Uh, better to be dead or better off to have never lived is one of our passages this morning. And it is, yet it is God's word. It attacks our false hopes and destroys them. And that can be quite offensive. And so I want you to be prepared for that this morning as we come to the word of God. Let's pray one more time. God, I'm nervous. 
This is such an important passage for us this morning, as all of your word is. And God, I pray that your spirit would be our only teacher this morning. So even as I pray that you would lead me and guide me in what I would say and help me not to say anything stupid, Lord, I pray that your spirit would instill in our hearts the truth that we already know because you are in us. We thank you that as we devote ourselves to obedience to you, regardless of our knowledge, you give us understanding. And so, Lord, we dedicate ourselves, before we look at this passage again, we dedicate ourselves to your truth and to live in obedience to and response to the love we have for you because you have loved us first. Transform us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Ecclesiastes 3.16. I'm going to read just the end of chapter 3 first. Moreover, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm just going to read two verses. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Up till now, Ecclesiastes has explored the existential questions without blinking. It, it contemplates the meaning of life in the face of certain death. And it has concluded regularly that since everything of this world is temporary, like vapor or mist, the Hebrew word hevel, here for a moment and gone, then a life lived for what is so fleeting is ultimately pointless, meaningless, vanity. And so as we continue to be led to consider the meaning of life and the eternal value of things with eyes wide open, we turn now to look at whether there is any hope to be found in the pursuit of justice and in political activism. So we're talking, talking about justice and politics. Fantastic, hey? Many who had asked the question about the meaning of life come to conclude that they are here to make the world a better place. And some would even go so far as to say that that is the purpose of the church, to make the world a better place. It is by this argument that the moral majority came to wed evangelical Christianity to hope in the government. There was a lot of preaching on politics and even on the end times. And this, this lined up well with a certain misguided and predominantly American view of the end times, an eschatology that saw the church as a militant force for change, which would elect the right people and pass the right laws so that we would be able to live in a quote-unquote Christian nation. But this is not what the Bible has guided us to put our hope in. Ecclesiastes teaches that we need to become jaded with the political process, that politics and the pursuit of justice are ultimately fleeting and meaningless in this heavy world. It, it communicates a, a definitively negative outlook on the direction of this world until the return of Christ in final judgment and the consummation of God's kingdom. And so it calls us to abandon all hope where there is none to be found and instead put our trust in the effective and eternal working of our gracious Heavenly Father. 
So we're told there is wickedness in the place of righteousness, wickedness in the place of justice, but God will judge the righteous and the wicked in his perfect timing. There is no perfect justice to be found in this heaven world, and yet God will judge at the appropriate time. In the Bible, there is a term used for this, uh, time, times, and half a time, or sometimes translated three and a half years. Now, I, my understanding is it's never actually literal except for the first time that it happened where there was a king who oversaw Israel, and he was a wicked king, and the prophecy was that in three and a half years, God would take him out. But this became a catchphrase in Israel for the time which God allows wickedness to have its way. Evil gets to do its thing. It gets to show just how bad it truly is, and then ultimately it serves God's purpose as he comes and judges finally. And so we see this is a common thing that happens in Scripture. But for now, not even the places which are dedicated to the pursuit of justice, the courts, are free from corruption in the place of justice. Even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And this abrupt parallelism communicates the outrage the author feels even as he writes about this situation, that in this cursed existence, even the people and places that are dedicated to making things right are filled with injustice. The innocent are found guilty, and the guilty are acquitted. The rights of the poor and the defenseless are not protected, while the wealthy and powerful often escape human justice since they often control it. Whether one is found guilty or innocent is sometimes determined by how much money they have. Ecclesiastes acknowledges that such injustice and political oppression are not merely localized issues, but a universal phenomenon. This is a fallen world. But it also offers an eternal hope. God himself, in his perfect timing, one day undisclosed to you and I, will set all things right, and injustice will finally be reversed. The wicked will not ultimately get away with it. But we long for justice in this time because we were made in the image of a God who is just. And so we cry out with the martyred saints in Revelation 6.10, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And so it is right that we sing laments like we did this morning. How long, O God? Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. These are the traditional refrains of the church, not because we have figured out how this life is so good, but we have figured out how hopeless the things of this world are and that our hope ultimately lies with the return of our Lord. We long for justice, but all of our longing and calls for justice comes to a problem, a major problem that faces each one of us we too receive death for our part in the sin and injustice of this world. Beginning in verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. 
For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. For who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I thought, saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? And so we desire justice, we want things to be set right, but what about our part in all this injustice? It is the common human condition that we want justice for others and mercy for ourselves. And this part of Ecclesiastes is echoed by the first half of Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Ecclesiastes does not deny the afterlife. In fact, it relies on it. It points us to it, but it urges us to take death seriously. Contemplation of the fleeting nature of our lives brings wisdom. Did you know this? Thinking about how short our lives are, listen to Psalm 90, verse 10 to 12. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And so Ecclesiastes asserts that humans are mortal, and in this sense, we are just like the animals. But this was not always so. Humanity was intended to eat from the tree of life and so live forever. But because of sin, we all die. And death equalizes animals and humans in this sense. Death renders everything meaningless. And we're reminded uh, of chapter 216, where it is said that the wise die just like the fool. It's not that there's no difference at all between being wise and being foolish. It's much better to be wise. Only that being wise does not mean that we can escape death. In the end, they both have the same problem. They both die. And so in this sense, we are the same as animals. This is the way we are compared now here to animals. The difference between humans and animals are vast. There are many differences between humans and animals, and Ecclesiastes isn't denying that. The Scripture teaches that God has established his image in his human creatures and has given them rulership over the animals and even has given animals to us to eat. But it is obvious to everyone that the fate of the human body is identical to that of animals. We dress it up, right? We, we fancy it up. We put them in a nicer box. But everybody knows, although we try to obfuscate it, the same thing happens to a human body as what happens to an animal. And this is what Ecclesiastes is getting at. We possess no inherent immortality apart from what God provides. We are not by nature immortal. We did not pre-exist this body nor would we continue in perpetuity without God resurrecting us. And because of our separation from God through sinful rebellion, we no longer have that advantage over animals. We die just like the beasts, verse 20. All go to one place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. 
Nothing else is completely evident from a human perspective about death. Both humans and animals have bodies that rot and become, once again, the dust they were made from. We don't even know, verse 21, whether their spirits go in different directions when they die. Do all dogs go to heaven? We don't know. It just says you don't know. We don't know which direction animal spirits go compared to men's spirits. Both their spirits go somewhere. Both their bodies die. We don't know. The explicit purpose of God announced in this is that people would see this sense in which they are like animals, that we are mortal. Death is consistently described in Scripture as a curse and an enemy which are overcome only by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if this is meant to be off-putting, the author is saying, hey, you're just like a dog. You die like a dog. And it's meant to, to confront you. And it's meant to make you uncomfortable so that your hope would not be placed in something insignificant. We don't know exactly what happens to us or animals. We do know that we're both mortal. And since we do not know what happens beyond this life, we have to rely on the eternal God who has put eternity in our hearts. And so we are told at the end here to enjoy his gifts while we can. And so Ecclesiastes 3 ends with yet another command to enjoy the simple things in life without knowing everything we might be curious to understand. Again, we need to see the refrain throughout Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes says mostly negative things, right? And then it has a refrain and a final hope. So the final hope is God is going to judge the righteous and the wicked. But the refrain all throughout is enjoy your life. Enjoy the simple things. Enjoy your work. Enjoy your food. Enjoy your family. Stop striving to gain things that cannot be gained. You can't make yourself immortal, so stop trying. You can't have a lasting treasure, so stop trying to gain it. Enjoy what gifts God has given you. So Ecclesiastes is not just all a downer. It is to give us the fullness of joy in this life. Again, in chapter 4, verse 1, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. This is not an uncommon lament. Job laments just so. The psalmist laments just so. Better that I had not lived than to see such evil. This is the strongest sense of a lament. Oppression that is done. Oppression is accumulation, the seeking after profit, without regard to the nature, needs, and rights of other people. So oppression, get it out of your mind, the oppression is just someone holding a whip. Oppression is any time someone takes advantage of someone else for a profit. Oppression is widespread and rampant in our society. And there's a fierce insistence in the Old Testament that people should not thus oppress each other. And Zechariah 7, 9-10 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. 
Deuteronomy 24, 14 says, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. In Proverbs 14, 31, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. And so we're told through Scripture that we are to care for the plight of others especially if they are the disenfranchised, those at the uh, perimeters, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the poor. These are brought up over and over again through the Old Testament law in addition to the Levite who has no inheritance. These are the people which the people of Israel to continue to care for and even in the way that they do business, is to prosper also these ones. Power, economic or otherwise, is not to be abused. People, whether they are less powerful than we are or not, are not to be treated as objects out of which profit can be squeezed, but as human beings made by the same God who created us all. So Ecclesiastes then laments not only that such oppression exists, but that we cannot do anything about it. The oppressors usually have sufficient power to make it virtually impossible to end the oppression. But in in the rare chance that some uprising is successful, power simply shifts to a different group. The only real change is the identities of the oppressed and the oppressors. This is the way of our world. We need to see things clearly for how they really are. The culture wars today claim to be a fight for justice, but really they just contend over who will be the new oppressors and the new oppressed. Such revolutions do not produce the fundamental respect for others or the just treatment that is consistent with seeing every human being as made in the image of God. And so we have... Racism and anti-racism, which is just as racist as the, as the racism. We have uh, fascists and anti-fascists who are both uh, harming each other, hurting each other, attacking each other, hating one another. Tribalism is still rampant, whatever language we put on it. It's always hatred of the other. Oppression. Cruelty is repaid with further cruelty, and no one can stop it, the Bible says. The distressed are not comforted. And no one can set things right. Strong words. Now, you might say, of course we can help the oppressed. And that would be quite true. Yes, you can help the oppressed. But the point here is that there is no net gain. You can help an individual, but you cannot end oppression altogether. You might work really hard to end oppression in one little corner of the world and see some degree of success, but the oppression pops back up again in another place. Even as one dictator is taken out, another pops up. Even as one government is is unseated, another one comes and takes its place. So certainly, we should work for justice. We should engage in mercy ministry. This is near God's heart and talked about repeatedly throughout the Bible, especially in the wisdom literature. But what we are meant to see here in Ecclesiastes is that without Christ, it will not be completely changed. We're not going to fix the system. Now, it may be a different view of the end times than you have currently carry, but this is the only way that the Scripture makes sense when it talks about our desperate need for Jesus to return. 
And when Ecclesiastes says it's not going to help, you can't fix it. And so there's many other books of the Bible that encourage us to help the poor, especially those of the family of faith. But the purpose of Ecclesiastes is to expose the meaninglessness of worldly pursuits in this heavy life. And no matter the effort, we will not cure poverty or oppression. In the words of Jesus, Mark 14, 7, for you always have the poor with you. Ecclesiastes grieves this reality. It is so painful that it expresses this opinion that it is better to be dead or better yet never to have been born. The dead no longer have to see what we humans do to one another. Injustice often worse than death. And better yet to have never been born to see such cruelty. Along with this pursuit of human justice, politics is also heavy. There is no lasting hope to be found in human leadership. But before we turn to the hope of the gospel, I want to look at two more passages in Ecclesiastes that that further inform this topic of justice and politics. The first, Ingrid read just a few verses down, Ecclesiastes 4.13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. The point of this illustration is to say, and we're not certain if this is a true illustration, maybe it's talking about King David, But the point of this illustration is to say that even in the rare instance that a wise young person of ignoble birth should, against all odds, rise to power and the people rejoice at his rule, it will not establish a lasting change in the political realm. So even if there was somehow a good human king, those who will come at later will not rejoice in him. This too is hevel, vanity, and a striving after wind. Even if there was just this honest, selfless leader to vote for, if we could see someone, man, that's a good Christian leader, and it almost makes it impossible to be voted in, I think. But if, even if we could just be like, wow, that is an incredibly honest, selfless leader to vote for, it would not be worth devoting your life to that political cause because their leadership would be so temporary. That too is hevel, temporary, a striving after wind fleeting, and of no lasting value. The second passage that informs this is in Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 to 9. And I'm grouping these here by topic, really, so that we don't come through the same topic of politics uh, week after week. If, If you've seen the province, the oppression of the poor, and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. The message here is that this bureaucratic hierarchy makes oppression predictable. Don't be surprised that you find it everywhere. It shouldn't be shocking to you that there is corruption and oppression everywhere. The bureaucracy that was put in place as a safeguard of checks and balances Uh, instead of actually serving that purpose, it enables oppression by high officials, even up to the king. 
So the idea is that the government officials protect one another so that rooting out corruption is impossible. What is set up to be an establishment of righteousness so that there'd be checks and balances ends up being the means of corruption that they would just look out for each other. They all get to take their share of what they are taking from oppression. And so we have a government that even when... I'm not going to talk about it. On the other hand, verse 9, there is still advantage for the land in having a government. Ecclesiastes is not suggesting anarchy. Ultimately, having a government is better than not having one. Just don't harbor any hope that we will have a lasting righteous government without Christ himself on the throne. And so we're commanded, 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 2, to pray for our government. And in Romans 13, 1, to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And so, right in the same passage, it says, you're going to find oppression in the government. Don't be surprised, it's going to be there. No matter who the government is. And at the same time, it's saying, but it's better that you have a government. Do you see how this passage, and this informs what we're talking about here this morning. So it's easy to get excited about changing the world or changing the political landscape for the good of all people. I am especially bad at this. I'm always thinking like, how can we fix this? How can we achieve the utopian ideal? I mean, even if we can't fix the Canadian government, that's maybe beyond hope, but maybe we can fix the Albertan government. Or, or maybe if we can't fix the Albertan government, I mean, maybe we could at least have non-corrupt city government. That'd be nice. You know, there's just always, there's, I've, my, my visions are getting smaller and smaller and smaller as I get older. And now I'm in Ecclesiastes and it's saying, don't even bother, Josh. It's, come Lord Jesus. The previous passage in Ecclesiastes 3 has made it clear that human accomplishments are always transitory and fleeting, while in contrast, chapter 3, verse 14, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. And so we get outraged by evil and motivated to change the world, but when we're honest about it, we realize that we can't even change our own hearts. Never mind the morality of this fallen world. What about me? I remember as a new pastor, uh, and this is now that I'm an old pastor uh, and see more new pastors, it's a very common thing, but as a new pastor, I was like, we're going to change the city. That's, that's our church's goal. We're going to change this city. And, and I've seen lit, probably half a dozen new pastors after me come into town and, and we're going to change the city. And, and we're going to change the city with some, some biblical understanding and some maturity becomes, oh God, that you would change my heart. Enforcing God's laws in our country will not change it any more than it changed ancient Israel. Because laws do not change the human heart, only Jesus can do that. And so we must recognize that our longing for righteous political leaders is ultimately a longing for King Jesus, who will set all things right in his eternal kingdom. In his kingdom, there will be no inequality, no racism, no sexism, no rich, no poor. In his name, all oppression shall cease. 
There will be a final judgment where the wicked are raised to eternal punishment and the righteous are raised to eternal life. There will be a full reckoning where all things are set right. And so Ecclesiastes ends in chapter 12 with this, verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. The good news is that for those who belong to Christ, their final judgment was brought into the center of human history and executed upon the body of Jesus Christ at the cross. He took the judgment you and I deserve for our sinful rebellion against God so that by repentance and faith, we could be declared righteous in God's sight. This is our only hope. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. And our only hope is that he has already judged in Christ our wickedness so that we could be called the righteous ones of God. Jesus took injustice upon himself. He knows what the oppressed are experiencing right now because the greatest injustice of the history of mankind is the Son of God being tortured and stripped and murdered by evil men. Jesus endured this injustice so that he could ultimately end injustice forever without wiping you and I off the earth as we deserve. The good news is also that Christ's eternal kingdom has broken in now to this fallen world. The eternal kingdom has already begun. We see it and we live it here and now in seed form in the church, the outposts of Christ's kingdom where every people, tongue and tribe, rich and poor, male and female, slave and free, sit down together at the table and freely receive that which God has graciously granted through his Son. Because Christ has established his own church, and Christ promises to build it. Remember that earlier in Ecclesiastes 3, it says, only what God does will last. But because Christ has done it, we are part of a lasting kingdom, even now. Because Christ has established the church, it will last. Because he promises to build it, it will be built. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers Labor in vain. God's people are, Ephesians 2.22, being built together as an eternal dwelling place for God by the Spirit, a city which has as its constitution the law of love. Because Christ has established his own church and promises to build it up, Matthew 16.18, we are, 1 Corinthians 14.12, to strive to excel in building up the church. How can what we do matter? I don't know if that made sense. What we do can matter if we are building Christ's kingdom. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. There is no other thing worth fretting about. I'm preaching to myself this morning. I got excited about politics for a little while. Not that I was ready to like endorse anyone, but I'm just like, man, we need, I just want something to change. 
never really thought about politics before it started affecting my life in the last few years. I started thinking, well, who's going to save us? And I realized, man, we're all just humans. There's no Savior here. There's no Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We're to build up the church to be a place where there are no needy among us, Acts 4.34. A place where mercy is shown to the hurting. We're not here to transform the world, but we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're not here to change the world. The the Bible's really clear about what Jesus is going to come back to. Enemies shaking their fist at him. That there's going to be Christians in Revelation crying out, how long, O Lord, till you take vengeance for the blood that they have spilt? But here and now, we have this foretaste of the eternal kingdom in the church. We long for the day when Jesus establishes his kingdom from sea to sea so that all oppression is ended. And we are still limited. We are still faulty. We're not perfect You'll find out very quickly, as you know me, that I'm not Jesus. But he's beginning this work in us. And so this absolute built-in desire for justice that you and I have, we need to recognize that only Jesus can accomplish it. It's accomplished in part now, this foretaste of future joy that we have now as the church, a society that is other, a society that sets itself against the world society and lives in a different way entirely, which is why we don't need to get so caught up with the culture war. We don't need to get so caught up with politics because all in the church, whether they lean one way or the other, uh, are meant to be something completely other. And so there's no hope in progressivism because we know from Scripture that they're not going to get it right. And there's no hope in conservatism because they never have got it right. And so the church is another way entirely, a foretaste of the eternal kingdom. I want to end with Psalm 42, or 72, 11 to 14. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him, for he delivers the needy when he calls the poor to him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.